Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Father James Martin. He's a Jesuit priest, editor-at-large of America Magazine, consultant to the Vatican's Diacostry for Communication, and author of numerous books, including the New York Times bestsellers, Jesus, A Pilgrimage, and The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything. Father Martin is a frequent commentator in the national and international media, having appeared on such diverse outlets as The Colbert Report, NPR's Fresh Air, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. His most recent book is Learning to Pray, a guide for everyone. I give you James Martin. Jim, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You have written a new book, Learning to Pray, a guide for everyone. Uh, it's a fantastic book, and I'm, I've, I've been a kind of fan of yours for a while. And the way I first heard of you, and I'm sure this is true for many folks, is you were the chaplain of the Colbert Report. <laughs> yes, and I was just reappointed the other night as the chaplain of The Late Show. He, wow. Yeah, he reappointed me. He asked me if I wanted to be Cardinal of the Late Show. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's a little too grand. I'll, I'll stick with Chaplin. So yeah, no, that is, that is the way a lot of people find, find out who I am. I'm curious about that relationship because I know, and I, I mean, I know that, uh, that Stephen Colbert is, is, is a very pious Catholic mm-hmm. and a real man of deep faith. How did you two connect? Well, it was funny. I, um, I had written something in, I think, 2007 about Mother Teresa. And I don't know if you, you probably remember when her letters were published, her great dark night of the soul was revealed. And I wrote a piece in the Times that basically talked about, you know, how this could be. Because a lot of people, including Christopher Hitchens, were saying, oh, see, this just proves she didn't believe in God. And I said, yeah, I don't, I don't think you're getting what she's saying. So what, wasn't Hitchens her devil's advocate in, in the canonization yes, thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so for people that don't know that, that the origin of that term, actually, if somebody's being considered for sainthood in the Catholic church, the person that argues against their sainthood mm-hmm. is actually called the devil the devil's advocate. advocate. Yeah. They've, they've since, unfortunately they've gotten, a, they've, they've let go of that role, which is, I think, unfortunate because I also love the term, but yeah, it was the person who was supposed to argue against, you know, you know, really sort of like bring negative evidence against the saint. But, um, but in any event, so so someone from his show saw that uh, a piece I wrote in the New York Times and they had me on the show and I was on, uh, yeah, like I, yeah, I think like eight or nine more times. And at one point he said I was, <laughs> I was the chaplain and it was great. You know, it's great. Look, it's a way to reach people. Cause you know, he was, you know, like for example, the other night we were talking about prayer on, you know, on late night TV and I could reach, you know, 10,000 uh, times more people than I could in a homily. So yeah, and he's a nice guy too. And as you said, he's he's super he's super devout. I mean, are are you guys friendly at all, or do you yeah, just kind of talk? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, it's not like we're I'm over his house all the time and he's texting me twenty four seven. But yeah, we're friends. Um, I don't see him that much. Um, and you know, we'll email each other once or twice. You know, like every couple months. He's a he's a very very nice person. And and let me tell you, he knows his stuff when it comes to Catholicism. The other day he talked about he just threw out the word filioque. 
um, on late night TV. And I think that <laughs> that was kind of a surprise to a lot the of people. The Filioque clause, baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. For those people who, who are not steeped in, uh, I was going to call it theology or just dorkness, uh, that would be... That would be whether or not the, the, the Holy Spirit proceeds from just the Father or from mm-hmm. the Father and the Son. And this mm-hmm. is divide one of the many dividing points of Eastern and Western mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Catholics. So it really made everybody's eyebrows go up. It was like when uh, President Biden suddenly quoted St. Augustine in the middle of his uh, <laughs> inaugural address. So yeah, That's interesting. As somebody who's, who's kind of... I don't want to, and I get, we'll get into your book in a moment because I really have some questions that I, I think it's a fantastic Thank text. You. But as someone who, who is a kind of popular voice of Catholicism in America, I mean, you, in, in a lot of media outlets, you're somebody they call to talk. What is it like? I mean, Biden, this is the first Catholic president in a while. And since, since, since Kennedy, Kennedy, Kennedy second, since Kennedy. only the second one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and he, he is pretty. He's not shy about mm-hmm. talking about faith. I mean, right. how is that? How is how are you experiencing this as a Catholic, as a Jesuit, having a Catholic president? Well, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's a sort of um, invitation for people to come to know Catholic culture too. I think that's the primary way that we'll see it. So, you know, he's look, he's a Democrat, so he has a certain uh, positions on certain things. I don't agree with all of them, um, but I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a lot of Catholic culture. He goes to mass. He makes the sign of the cross. He talks about St. Augustine. He's talked about the hymn on eagle's wings. I think that's what is surprising to people because, you know, they knew they were getting someone who, you know, on the census form or wherever you fill it out, writes, you know, Roman Catholic. I think, oh, okay, he's Catholic. He believes in certain things. I think that people forgot that even more than Kennedy, because Kennedy was trying to downplay that because, as you remember, people, or as you know, people were suspicious of his Catholicism. I think Biden is fine with, you know, hey, look, here I am going to Mass, and here I am talking about the Jesuits and the Jesuit Refugee Service and quoting from St. Augustine. So it's a lot of Catholic culture. I think we're, I think people weren't prepared for, you know, quite how comfortable he is with his faith. So in your book, you make the point that, that basically everyone is kind of inclined to prayer. Mm-hmm. You talk about these everyday things that people do, right, that they're mm-hmm. showing that, because I think, if you were, I mean, one of the things that's that's interesting about the book is it's an invitation, whether you're a Christian that just struggles with prayer or whether you're a person that is inclined towards faith but unaffiliated, you're kind of arguing, look, you're probably doing it already. Yeah. You just don't know it, right? When you're doing these things, you know, when you're talking to yourself or you're, you know, you're, 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 you're going through, you know, the moral inventory, other things, you're basically touching the transcendent, whether or not you know it or yeah. admit it. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I think um, what I say in the beginning of the book is that we all have a natural desire for that. And, you know, one of the one of the things I say in the book, which I think people might think is funny, is, look, you have an interest in prayer. How do I know that? You're reading this book or you're listening to this podcast right now. I mean, there's a reason why you're listening to a podcast about prayer. You have an interest in it. Where does that interest come from? Where does that desire come from? It comes from God. That's the way that God calls us, very simply put. Um, and to your point, um, the, the kinds of things that we, we do sometimes uh, unconsciously, you know, asking God for help, you know, sort of feeling inspired by something and wondering about something, maybe connecting it to the Gospels, uh, you know, looking at something in awe. Uh, You know, I have a whole list of things that are kind of the beginning of prayer. It's a kind of invitation to prayer. Um, And the problem is that, um, to use a word that a friend of mine liked to use, which I love, is that people aren't encouraged to think about it in that way. 
So if someone says, you know, boy, I really feel this desire for, I don't know, like just like, I, I mean, I was in, I was at a, a wedding and I saw someone praying and that really moved me, or I was out in nature or someone said something to me, or I saw something on a movie and it just sort of, it made me feel like I wanted more. The, the key insight I think is to say that this is not only a sort of a curiosity or a, an attraction on your part, but that's actually God's call. That's, I mean, because how else is God going to sort of draw, draw people closer other than by awakening in them this desire? And once people get that, it really unlocks something. They say, wow, this is now something that is, is for me to respond to, you know, or not respond to. But it's not just your curiosity or your attraction. It's God calling you. That, that's, a, that's a call. That's how God calls you, I think. You know, I remember I had a spiritual director years ago who was a Catholic priest and a great guy in Pittsburgh. And he he told me that, you know, when he, he was always celibate, but he didn't have the gift of celibacy when he became a priest. He said he was restless and it was hard, but then he kind of received it. Mm -hmm. I wonder, do, do you think you're a, a gifted prayer? Because I mean, some people, you know, there's some people like, I, I know people that knew Henri now and and they said he was like a bag of cats when he was in like in like a monastery or something. Bag like of he's cats. the guy. That, he's like the guy that's making noise with the beads uh -huh. and the books. And I mean, mm -hmm. are you someone that's inclined spiritually to? Because I know certain people that are. Mystical I would say, or is it as it's as it a discipline? That's an interesting. That's a very interesting question. Look, I, I would say this. I would say that different people are inclined to different ways of prayer. So someone might be inclined to kind of quiet, contemplative, private prayer, and that's great, right? That doesn't mean it's always rich. Other people might be inclined to a different kind of prayer. They might like to walk around. They might like to, you know, read scripture. They might like to sing, you know, when they're praying. They might like to listen to music. And that's okay. I think that the problem can be that um, we sometimes have these stereotypes of what it means to be prayerful, right? It means just being in your room and being quiet and being still. And that's not the way that everybody, everybody prays. But I would say to answer your question more directly, you know, I think that I've I've learned sort of how to pray, I think also I've learned more importantly, maybe the most important thing is that prayer is not always rich, right? And it's not always, it doesn't always feel like something is quote unquote happening, even though I think something is. And there have been times, look, that I go on an eight day retreat every year uh, as a Jesuit. I've done two 30 day retreats. And there's times when I feel like a bag of cats, like I just don't want to sit there and, you know, or things are dry. And I think the key, one of the keys is to tell people that's okay. Like, it doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. It doesn't mean you're not, you're not a good prayer. It doesn't mean that God's mad at you. I hear that a lot. You know, my, my prayer stinks because I did something wrong and God's punishing me. It just means you're human. So I, I would say I'm a, I'm a, I'm gifted at prayer at times, <laughs> not all the time. You're like right in the meaty part of the curve. Yeah. But also like, it is a <laughs> gift. I mean, God, it's a gift that, you know, you can't sort of make it happen. And I think that's another sort of fallacy that people fall into, that it's something that, you know, like I have failed at my prayer because I did not produce, you know, some amazing emotional response or insight or feeling or memories, you know, the kind of stuff I talk about in the book. It's, it's part of the spiritual life. It's just part of the ups and downs of the spiritual life. Yeah. And you have a chapter in the book entitled Beginning a Friendship with God. And I think about, as you were just talking, I was thinking about any, any meaningful, deep friendship or any successful marriage includes a lot of dry time, right? A lot of time. I mean, I, I'm watching Curb Your Enthusiasm for the first time. I love, I've never, I love that show. I've never seen, I can't believe, like, I feel like I just, it was like, uh, I feel like scales just fell off my eyes. Like I'm St. Paul on the road to Damascus. But you know, you just see him and his manager spend so much time eating together, making banal observations, right? That, that it's not, you know, and then there's these hilarious moments, but 
is that kind of is it is it analogous to that? You you put in a lot of time for this to get to the special moments. Great analogy, and that you could say that even the moments that don't seem quote unquote special are kind of beautiful. I mean, a lot of times you look back on what you miss about a friendship or something, and it's just the kind of quiet, easy times. It's not the peak moments. Um, but yeah, you have to really be faithful to it in order for you to provide the space for something, you know, maybe more profound or more uh, memorable to happen. Absolutely. Because look, if you don't, if you don't do the, your practice, right. And which, you know, literally means, you know, praying for half an hour or an hour a day or 15 minutes, if you can't find that time, then there isn't going to be any space for God to kind of work through that prayer. You can't just sit down and say, all right, this is it. Like, let's have our big moment, God. Like you wouldn't be able to do that in a relationship. It has to come kind of when, you know, when God wants it to come, which is pretty mysterious. But yeah, I think that's a great that's a, I, I love that show too. But yeah, they, they're, they're sort of passing time, but they're, they're together, you know? I'm curious, you talk, you, you talk with atheists, I'm sure, pretty regularly and people that are, mm-hmm. that are uh, not of particular religious faith sure. because you're in, you know, New York City, you're, you know, mm-hmm. you're kind of moving in those sort of circles. Mm-hmm. How do you talk about prayer with people that aren't, that, that don't believe, that don't believe in God? I mean, do, do they... Do they kind of pull you aside and be like, ah, I've kind of had a moment. I thought I believed. Is this a Santa Claus thing? I mean, do people do people pull you aside at parties? Like, can I just get this off my chest? I mean, how, how are those kinds of interactions? That's a great question. Um, you know, I also have friends from, you know, high school and college and my, my times at GE that aren't particularly religious. So it's it's not, it's, it's also friends like that that I've known for a long time. I, I think that in general, the atheists who I know, um, may not bring it up as much as like the agnostics or the seekers. So for some of the atheists, not everybody, some of the atheists, they're, you know, they're respectful, but they're not, they don't probe as much. A seeker and and an agnostic, those are the kinds of questions that I get. Like, how do you even pray? Like, what does that even mean? What's supposed to happen? And one of the points of the book, which I really wanted to focus on was, what, what even happens when I close my eyes? That was one of the key questions I had when I was a Jesuit novice, because I had no clue. What are you talking about? People would say, well, you know, my prayer is so rich and I feel so connected to God and God said this to me. And I was like, what are you talking about? And so that's the question most people have. What's supposed to happen? And so I talk in the book explicitly, which some spiritual books don't talk about. They talk about the fruits of prayer. It's kind of vague. That's what people really want to know. Like what, what is supposed to happen? And, or, or this thing happened to me. And what does that mean? And is that, is that God? Usually it is. Or usually you can say like, can you consider that that might be God? Um, so I'll tell you a, a funny story. Um, <clears throat> I had this friend of mine, I'm not going to say who it is. Um, and someone essentially dragged her to a one day retreat. Okay. At nearby her house, actually, uh, in Philadelphia. So we're both, where we're both from. Is it Lady Gaga? No, it is <laughs> It is not. It is not Stephanie Germanata. So, um, so they were at this retreat house and they found themselves in a labyrinth, you know, which is a staple of retreat houses, you know, one of those sort of stone labyrinths on the, on the ground. And they were walking and they said, and this is someone who doesn't go on retreats. And then they said, when I was in the middle of it, I felt this sense of real calm. I just stood there and I felt this sense of real calm. What do you think that was? And so, you know, it's to invite people to say, well, do you think that might've been God? Do you think that might've been an experience of God? Those are the kind of questions I get. It's, it's sort of helped me understand what happened. And when people bring those up, it just takes a little encouragement to say, hey, did you ever consider that's the way 
that God would be speaking to you. I mean, and why wouldn't God speak to you on a retreat, you know, in the middle of a, of a labyrinth? Why not? But, but oftentimes people have not had these experiences and they can be a little frightening to them or confusing. And all they need is encouragement. Yeah, I think that sounds pretty authentic. You open the book with talk about Hail Marys and as a kid and mm-hmm. talk about praying for a dog. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what was your first memory of praying? Like, as, as, as it, was it in church? Was it outside of church? Was it, you know, rosaries? And what, what yeah, it was, it was asking for things. Which, I, which is a perfectly legitimate and I think what's called petitionary prayer sometimes gets, um, you know, short shrift. Um, and you even point out Jesus did it. Like you say, Jesus, hey, Jesus give us models. this day our daily bread. Right. And like you, Jesus, you know, yeah. Jesus says, remove this cup from me. Right. I talk about Carl Rahner, a theologian that I know, you know, who said that Jesus's prayer, which I love, is basically honesty. So he's, you know, like remove this cup from me. He's being honest. Trust, you know, at the tomb of Lazarus, he says, I know you hear me. And then acceptance, you know, not, not my will, but your will. I think we tend to short circuit. People use, do like two or two out of the three or one out of three. Sometimes people feel like they can't be honest. I, you, you have no idea how many people, or maybe you do, say to me, well, I shouldn't ask for things. Well, yeah, it's okay to ask for something, but can you have trust? And then the acceptance part is, is difficult for people. But my first prayers were basically, I mean, look, I talk about in the book. Getting down on my hands and knees, maybe my knees, in front of my dresser, in front of an old picture of the Pieta, which my grandparents got at the 1964 World's Fair, and asking God for stuff. I want a dog. I want to get an A in this test. I want to hit a home run in Little League. I want, give me this, and and sort of making kind of payments. And I'm going to say 10 Hail Marys. Now, here's the thing. In a lot of books on prayer, people say, oh, that's ridiculous. But look, asking for things is okay. That that's but but the point of the book is that prayer can be a lot more than that, because if we were friends, you know, Scott, and I was, you know, seeing you all the time and all I did was ask for stuff. Hey, right. Scott, I want this. I want this. You'd say this is a kind of strange friendship. If but by the same token, if I never asked you for anything, I don't need anything. That would also be a strange relationship. So it has to be kind of a happy medium. And there's a great book. Uh, I think it's by Von Balthazar or or one of these kind of theologians that most people listening probably haven't read. Um, but unless you become like this child, um, mm. and I think about like the, the relationship of a child to a parent. Mm. And if a child couldn't ask a parent, no, eventually as you become an adult child, you, you can give to the parent in a way. Right. But, but your, your relationship starts in dependence, right? Like, yes. And you know, Bill Barry, a great spiritual writer I talk about a lot in this book, um, who just died a few weeks ago, um, said that a good analogy is the, the, the relationship with the, uh, uh, between the adult child and the parent. Right. So, and sometimes we do feel like we're, we're the child in front of, we are children of God that we're in front of God like that. And look, I ask for things in prayer, but what, what have you asked for most recently? <clears throat> well, a, a vaccine to be developed. We pray for that all the time. Um, hey, I was in the Moderna trial. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, I was unblinded, man. I am. A, I got the real thing. So, how did uh, you? So you. So now, are you you uh, vaccinated twice? Then. Yeah, yeah. I got both shots, and they un, they unveiled me, and yeah. I mean, good for praise, you. That's praise great. God for Moderna, man. Thank I mean, God. You know. And it, yeah. I mean, that look that that's something that I've been praying for in my Jesuit community for the last whatever year. I can't believe it's a year. Um, you know, I pray that. Um, People I know will get uh, well. Um, you know, I've um, just the, the kinds of things that that I think a lot of people pray for. I pray for inspiration. I pray for perseverance in terms of you know working my books and things like that. 
So I think that's fine. I think did you, I pray, think to, did you pray that the book would be well received? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's not, it's not like I pray, I'm not like getting any money out of it, but I want people to read it. You know, I think it's, it, I want people to be able to read the book. Um, but the, the key is this, um, that, you know, if you didn't pray for stuff, if you weren't honest with God, I think that would really short circuit your relationship. And I know this in spiritual direction. If, if there's some, if there's some block that people have, it makes God feel distant. And part of it is just asking. Now, the thing is, that doesn't mean I get everything that I ask. I talk about unanswered prayers in the book. The, the point is the relationship, but I, I think it's okay to ask. You know, I think it's okay to ask for good things. Because so part of the, you talk about in the book is just so much of prayer comes, at, it comes from self-awareness and brings self-awareness. So we say so. Mm-hmm. So if you're not being honest about what you want, you're probably blocked off from yourself. Right? Yeah, or, or, or I would say this, Scott, that you might have a, a, a different image of God. So, you know, prayer is about obviously more than asking, as I was saying. There's a lot of, there's, I talk about lots and lots of different ways of praying in the book. Um, but if, if, you're not, if you're not honest with God, um, then, then the relationship is going to suffer, right? It's not, so, so it's not all about asking, but it, it has to be in part, honest and that that's part of any that's part of any relationship so i i think it's i think it's really essential to to include that and not to be embarrassed about it which a lot of people are and to your point it goes it goes to god's image so for example if you say i cannot pray to god because i know god will be angry with me because god thinks i'm selfish well what kind of an image of god is that so a lot of it is is helping people see past their initial images of god which often come from Sometimes they're parents, you know, and I always say God is not like your exacting or judgmental or taskmaster father or mother or teacher or mentor or priest or pastor. God's God. One of the things that I found really moving in your book was you talk about the role of anger in prayer. Mm. And you tell this great story, which is pretty vulnerable. I was pretty impressed. You mm-hmm. you say, uh, God, could I just get some bleeping help here. And I'm guessing it was an F-bomb. Uh, well, it sounds well, like it from the context. But. As we say, I will pass over that in silence. Um, yeah, I was really angry about something and I was so angry and it feel, felt like things weren't really going my way. Um, and I, frankly, I can't even remember what it was, which is probably good. Um, but I just remember in this room that I'm recording from now, just getting down on my knees and saying, how about some bleeping help? I was so angry and I felt like, you know, it, I just needed help. And the next week I spoke to my spiritual director and I said, I'm kind of embarrassed. He said, that's a good prayer. That's what I loved. I loved his response. Uh, I said, why? He said, because it's honest. Now he, here's the point. You can't do that all the time with God. But what he said to me was, which was really interesting was, but what else is going on in your life? Right. And I said, well, there's this and there's that. And he said, well, can you bring that into your prayer too? Not just the problems, but the good stuff, because you want to be, this was another brilliant insight. If all you're doing is complaining, is that really honest with God? Is your life really 100% bad? And he said, if you bring the whole, the totality of your life into the prayer, that's a little more honest. So it, it, it helped me to realize I was being a little selfish, like, oh, I'm not getting this one thing. You know, it's like a kid with a parent, like I, I, I want a dog and if I don't get a dog, I'm going to hate you for the rest of your life. Well, there's a lot of other stuff going on in the in the kid's life that he's in, he's invited or she's invited to see. So, in the end, it was a good prayer. It was it it unblocked me too, and it made me it look. I'll be very vulnerable. It made me see that sometimes I can be kind of childish in prayer. 
Like, I have to have this. We all feel that way at different times. And I'm sure during the pandemic, people have felt that, like that a lot. One of the things, you, you have a chapter in here on r- the value of rote prayers and, mm-hmm. and rhythms. And, I, you know, I think as I was reading your book, I thought, you know, it, it's the adage of like, there's 14 golf clubs in a bag for a reason, right? Like, that's a you great. Know, it, did, you make you know, that, did you make that up or is that a... Uh, that's original to me. Uh, that's pretty great. I'm going to have to steal that. Although a guy I went to high school with who went on to become a D1 golfer, mm. somebody bet he couldn't shoot, uh, he couldn't shoot even par on nine holes with just a seven iron. And he did it high. Well, he you putted, mean he did it while he, while he was high? He was high with a seven iron. He putted with a seven iron. He teed off with a seven iron. He chipped with it. He had his approach shots and he was high. Well, but, I have to tell you, just, to, just as an aside, from my Philadelphia bona fides, two summers, I was a caddy at the Philadelphia Cricket Club. At the Cricket Club? Wow, uh-huh. did you play it? Did you get to play no, it? No, I, I was the worst caddy ever because I had no idea how to play golf. So people would say, what, what, what club should I use for this? And I was like, now here's one. There you go. This one looks fantastic. <laughs> Terrible. But, um, you know, the I, laminate I, on this wood is beautiful. I will, I will, and I will pass over how often I was high when I was doing it. So this was the, seven, this was the 70s after all. So. You were literally living Caddyshack. You know, I found, you know, this is a, I, I've actually thought about writing a book about my summer jobs because they were so crazy. And, you know, when you're growing up in the 70s, I think I had them all. Bus boy, waiter, dishwasher, movie theater usher. And I was a caddy. And it was, um, it was, it was kind of tough because, you know, that's a lot of physically that's tough. Sometimes I was doing double bagging, as they say, where you're carrying around two bags, you know, I'm like 16, 17 carrying around these and they would put like their, their, their shoes in there and their extra golf balls. And it was, a, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of work. Um, I was not, and I was a pretty bad caddy, I would say. <laughs> so anyway, I'm sorry. So your, 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 your image, yes, you do have 14 I, I, clubs I, for a reason. Yeah, no, yeah. I caddied for a buddy of mine. He was in the West Virginia, uh, like state amateur. Like we we both wow. played golf together. Oh wow! Degree. Yeah. So like I was caddying, and he asked me to read this platform, and he missed it. And he looked at me like basically like that was your fault. I missed the platform. <laughs> well, you know, let me tell you my favorite caddying story. This is a true story, and you will know as as someone who golfs, this is not made up. So I was at the Philadelphia Cricket Club. I'm 17 years old, 16, 18, whatever I was, <clears throat> and I was accompanying this fella, this man, this businessman, and uh, he was getting angrier and angrier. So it was just me and him. He was playing by himself. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, if this is what golf does to you, like, you know, forget it. So we get to the, um, one of the greens, I have to remember all my caddying words. We get to the, one of the greens and uh, it is overlooking a, like a, like a, like a cliff almost, right? So it's like on the edge of a cliff. I will never forget this. He putted probably five or six times, missing each time. And of course, you know, as the caddy, you're supposed to move so not to be in the way and not to be in the line of sight. He was getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And he said to me, he was so angry. And, you know, he's like 50, 60 years old. He said, give me my driver. So we're on the green. He takes out a tee. Yeah, he takes out a tee. He tees up the ball from the green. And for those who aren't golfers, you're not supposed to do it that way. And he hits the ball into the ravine. And he says, give me my clubs. And I give him the bag and he throws the whole bag into the ravine. <laughs> and then he takes his driver and he snaps it over his knee and he says, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember thinking, wow, I don't know if I want to be a golfer. That's how angry. He, I'll never forget it. That's how angry he was. And he gave me like a tip. But that and we walked back to the clubhouse. He was so angry. 
See, he so. could have used your book on prayer. He could have used my book on prayer. He could have used, you know, like a Valium too. Um, but anyway, we're, we're getting off topic. <laughs> but, anyway. no, but, the, but, but the 14 clubs in a bag for a reason yes. is interesting because what I love, love about your book is you're really um, even handed on the traditions that like you're like, look, you have all these clubs in the bag. Right. And so so you don't need to just work with them. You're going to like every golfer is going to have their favorite clubs they like to hit and stuff. But you got all the clubs. Right. And, and, and that's what I really appreciated the book, because you you talk about, for instance, you have a whole cha- chapter on just nature and, mm-hmm. and, you know, how some people, you know, some people, gosh, you get them in nature for fun. I'm like one of those people, like bug spray. I get, I, 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 I'm 10 minutes and I'm like, I'm yeah. done. I, I'm do done. You know, um, do you know Fran Leibowitz? Are you a Fran Leibowitz fan? I am. I do like Fran Leibowitz. Yeah. One of her, there's a big Netflix special with her on and Martin Scorsese. One of her lines is nature is what you pass through to get from your hotel to a taxi cab. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> this is why we're modern so There's always people. something biting you or stinging you. Right. I don't understand why right. we go camping. Cause I'm kind of yeah. like, look, we we went to enlightenment modernity to not I, be camping, right? Like this is we, we had a whole enlightenment to right. not do this. Thank you, Descartes, because right, like, therefore I do not have to, I, I I I am therefore I do not have to camp. Right. Let's just not eat pasteurized food. I, like that's it. Let's do that. Like why don't we do that pre modern? No, thing? but you're right. Your point is it's well taken. That you know not it's not for everybody, right? But you but know. But I have wrote, had moments. I have had mm-hmm. moments on usually on beaches mm. um, where where I felt transcendent moments. Like it's 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 not the kind of thing where like. I have friends. I have a good friend who's a photographer, and man, he walks in nature every day, and that's where he finds God. Mm-hmm. But but it's good to have that club in your bag, right? I mean, exactly. it's, you don't need to use it all the time, but it's exactly. good to know it's there. And right, and thank you for noticing that. Yeah, and what works for Scott uh, may not work for Jim or your friend, and you may not want to walk on the beach every day, right? You you may decide to pray in a different way, um, and that's why we have all those clubs and it's, it's okay. And I think one of the key insights for me, and I really try to hammer this home in the book is that no one should say to you, Scott, because you're not using your five iron, you're a bad golfer, right? It, because you're not, you know, going to the beach every day, you're not a real believer that that's wrong. It's just, it's different ways of relating and people have different ways of relating to God. And really this comes from uh, 30 years as a Jesuit and 20 years of being a spiritual director. You just see the people God relates to people in a different way too. That's the other thing. Sort of the, the Holy Spirit relates to people in a different way. Can I tell you a quick story? Of course. Um, so um, I uh, lead pilgrimages pilgrimages to the Holy Land, um, and I've done about five or six, and we have like a hundred pilgrims, right? Which is a lot. And at the end of every day, we have faith sharing where people talk about their experiences of God. And one of the things that's amazing is how different they are. So one person might say, you know, to your point, oh, I was looking at the Sea of Galilee and I just imagined Jesus there and it was so moving. Another person will say, oh, that line in the hymn made me cry. And another person will say, oh, when I was in this church, this happened. Now, here's the point. The first person might say, oh, I was in the Sea of Galilee. Didn't that move you? Another person will say, not really. (laughs) Or wasn't that hymn amazing? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of that particular hymn. So the spirit works very individually with people, right? But it's the same spirit. And it's wrong for, for someone to say, because you didn't like that hymn and it didn't move you to tears, you're a bad Christian, you're a bad Catholic, you're a bad believer. The spirit works in very different ways. And part of my work as a director has been to really reverence those different ways. And I really, I really do. It's, it, you have to reverence them. And so when you, if you were to come to me and say, I had this experience on the beach, that's beautiful because this is the way that God is working through you. But I would never say to another person, 
you have to have that exact experience or you're a bad believer. That's for me, that's the point. The spirit is very unique and personal and individual, even though it's the same spirit. Do you think there's a unique advantage being Catholic, getting this wisdom? Because I think Protestant kind of Christians generally splinter. If, well, you like praying this way or you like praying. So we start a new denomination or something, right? Or even in Judaism, right? You kind of, well, if we have these kind of observations, you know, you're, this, you're in this crew or you're in that crew. But Catholicism has this interesting way of like, you know, of finding like, you know, oh, okay, what, you, you like nature? Okay, you can start the Franciscans. Aquinas, you like to meditate. You like to think about theological logarithms. That's fine. You're not a nature guy. You sit and write. You know, like, like Catholicism seems to have this really remarkable ability to keep everyone in the fold and say you're all still on the team. That's a great insight. You know, and frankly, I never thought about it in terms of religious tradition, religious orders. That is a great insight. Like you, you this is your particular kind of spirituality. You're a Franciscan, or you're a Jesuit, or you're a Dominican. I would say we still have people. I think the problem is. There are still people who say, if you don't like this or agree with this teaching, this is the sine qua non, then you are a bad Catholic. So there's still a lot. We, we just do it in a different way. It's less about prayer and more about which teachings and doctrines you highlight, not even follow, but you highlight. Um, and there are people that will say, not many, but there are people that will look askance at people who do not pray the rosary, who do not go to adoration who do not do X, Y, Z. And you're a better Catholic if you do this. There's a little of that. Um, we still have, you know, you know, as they say, see how they shove one another. We still have a lot of that in the Catholic Church. Uh, but we're less likely to, we're less likely to split off and more likely to say, you should leave. <laughs> you're a bad Catholic. This would be a little nicer of a party if you just weren't here. Well, anymore. kind of, yeah. And I mean, I get that a lot. I do a lot of work with LGBT people. And I've gotten people who have said to me, you know, on, mainly online, you should leave the church. You should just leave. You should leave the priesthood and leave the church. So it's more, it's more that. It's more, I'm the good Catholic and you're a bad Catholic because, you know, certain things that you do or certain things that you say. But, you know, look, it's a big church. And so, you know, as long as you're baptized, that's how I see it. You know, you're, you're part of the church. When, when Francis became Pope, wait, mm. um, were you like, he's on my team? In the Jesuits. I and mean, was, was there a kind of moment of personal pride? Well, I'll tell you, funny enough, Francis, um, and I'm sure you've read a lot of the, the different biographies, Francis was a quite, of a quite a controversial Jesuit provincial or regional superior when he was in Argentina. And he said this, that he was kind of a jerk. He said, I made rash decisions. He was very young. He was 36. Usually the age would be like 60 or something. And he split the province. And so let me tell you, Scott, he had a very checkered reputation in the Jesuits. And when, I'll tell you a funny story. I've, I've said this before. In 2005, when Pope Benedict was elected during that conclave, I was sitting with a Jesuit reading through the New York Times, the list of uh, papal electors, and they published them. They're really interesting. So anyway, so I'm going through the list and I know most of them. And I see Jorge Mario Bergoglio, SJ, Society of Jesus. And I said, who is to this older Jesuit who worked in Rome? who is Jorge Mario Bergoglio? And he goes, he would be awful. He's horrible. He's reactionary. He's rigid. He's horrible. So I was like, wow, okay. Never heard of him, but whatever. So anyway, so Benedict gets elected. And then a couple of years later, you know, in 2013, by the way, this we're, we're speaking on the anniversary of the day that Benedict resigned. And 2013, I'm in a TV studio. I'm helping ABC and the doors open. And it says, you know, habemos papam. 
uh, eminentissimum ac reverendissimum Sancte Romani Ecclesiae Jorge uh, Cardinalem Bergoglio. And I said, oh my gosh, it's the terrible Jesuit. It's, it's the horrible Jesuit that I was just warned about. But, you know, within about a day or two, you know, you realize that, you know, the, 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 the reputation he had from 40 years ago had changed and he had changed. I think he's fantastic. I just think. And so, yeah, there's a lot of, um, we, we're not supposed to be too proud, but there's a lot of pride there. He's, I just think he's doing a great job and he is a, he's, and I, I met with him, um, a year or two ago, um, for, what was that hour. like for how long? Amazing. Um, I was over there. I have a very low level position on a Vatican, um, committee, very, very low level. What committee is it? It's called the Dicastery for Communication, which is their, you know, it's the, the communication arm. So all the external communications. And so you're in like, Jim, you're on Colbert, you're a funny no. American Catholic. Like, what are we doing? Like, how do we get better at this? There's a little of that. There's a little of that, but it's, it's, yeah. So, so I'm a consultor, which is very low, le- really, truly like there's a staff and then there's members and I, I go over there maybe once every, it's a five-year appointment. In any event, I was over there and a friend of mine said, would you like to meet the Pope? And I said, uh, yes. Um, and so he asked the Pope, he's a friend of the Pope's and they said, the Pope wants to meet you. So I was in this big audience and the Pope said, I'd like to have an audience with you. And so we had a private audience, which was publicized and they sent out a picture. That was his way of kind of showing his approval. Um, and we talked about LGBT Catholics for a half an hour. It was pretty amazing. I, I, and what was it like? It was a highlight of my life. I mean, it really was, he, he was, it was tremendous. And to be able to bring those voices into that room was great. And he, you know, it was like being with another Jesuit. I didn't feel nervous at all, which was very strange because I also didn't, I wasn't there to convince him of something. I was just kind of being uh, the voice of that community um, as much as I could. So it was and great. He was, he oh, was really. likable. Did you? Oh I mean, my gosh. Oh my gosh. Uh, funny, funny. Um, I'll tell you one story. I'm not allowed to say what we talked about because he asked me to be silent, but um, I, my nephew, you'll love this, who, um, he took the name Francis as his confirmation name and he wrote him a letter in Spanish. And he said, if you meet the Pope and I thought, I'm not going to meet the Pope. Well, I ended, up, I ended up meeting the Pope and I bring the letter in and I said, I have a, this is all through an interpreter. I have a letter from my nephew. Well, let me see it. He takes it out. And he says, look at this. He shows the interpreter. Look at this. How old is he? I said, 15. Oh, he said, do you think, would he like me to write him a letter back? <laughs> I said, yes. <laughs> so he took out a pen and a little postcard, and he wrote him a letter on the spot. Dear Matthew, you know, please pray for me. And and then um, I said, well, he's taking Francis. I said, my other nephew took Ignatius, which is the Jesuit uh, founder. And Francis said, he's very funny. Francis said, oh, your family is obsessed with confirmation names. <laughs> he said, it's a sickness. He's very funny. He's funny. And he laughed and smiled and, you know, it was, he was very relaxed and totally with it. Let me just say, totally with it. He knew exactly what I was talking about. He, he, he asked great questions. It wasn't like, oh yeah, what do you do? And it was amazing. So I, I left sort of floating on air. I was really, really happy. It was a really great day. And I was just, uh, I'll tell you something. I literally, fe- you've heard the expression walking on air. Yeah. I actually felt that way. I actually felt as I walked out of his office, there must be some psychological thing like lighter first time ever. So it was, it was a great time. It was a great thing and real, real profound moment for me. Just as I'm the, sure, the, I'm sure you've seen the movie, the two popes. Oh, sure. Right, I love sure. that movie. 
Right, you'd and, be kicked out of the Jesuits if they. I mean, if you didn't see it <laughs> within the month after it's released, you're out. Right, well, you got to see it. You got to see it. I mean, <laughs> the other, that's so funny. You do. The other thing you have to say by law. Our joke is by law. If you say Anthony Fauci, you have to say you know he went to a Jesuit high school and a Jesuit college, don't you? <laughs> You are required to say that. Our hero, Fauci. Yeah, Anthony I, Fauci. You know that he went to a Jesuit high school. And I was like, oh my gosh, the first month that he was prominent. Oh my gosh, if one more Jesuit said that to me. <laughs> you know, I found the most moving part of that film, I thought, because it's interesting mm. to hear you talk about Bergoglio, like, mm. is when they hear each other's confessions. Yeah. And, sorry, uh, right. and Benedict says, very moving. You think your sins disqualify you? <laughs> It's a very beautiful. It is beautiful. Why does that move? Why does that move you? It's the power of forgiveness. That's one of the reasons we pray, right? It's the power of confession. I mean, I think it's interesting that the one of the biggest mistakes I think of Protestantism was getting rid of the confessional, right? Because you really, well, well, I mean, I think Luther's idea was, well, you'll confess to everybody, or or you'll kind, and you wind up confessing to nobody, right? And so this powerful moment where all these difficulties of a young guy who, who had a lot of made a lot of mistakes mm. where Benedict who would have made his own mistakes was able to absolve him and free him yeah. to be a new man. And like you're saying, it, it seems like people, he surprised people the way he was. I mean, oh, totally. the, like he was kind of born again. I mean, and yeah, the papacy, mm-hmm. it was a born again experience for him. It seems. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that with me. I, it is a moving moment and confession is moving. And I think, you know, as you're sharing that with me um, and your reaction to it, it's also they're very human. They're both very human. And, you know, Benedict has made mistakes. And look, uh, Bergoglio, um, boy, I mean, he's 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 pretty blunt about them. And it's a very it's a very beautiful scene. I think that people I think they're a lot closer than I don't mean like emotionally close. I think in terms of their outlooks, they're a lot closer than people think. Right. And they're they're very pastoral. Um but yeah, it is, it is a beautiful movie. And I think it really goes into his, the difficulties he had in his life that, that ended up really like splitting the Jesuits in Argentina. Um, and he said in, a, in, a, in an interview in America Magazine, one of the first interviews he did, he said, I was, I was rash and impetuous and I made bad decisions. And I'll tell you a funny story. Um, <clears throat> in that magazine article, he said, I was appointed Jesuit provincial, i.e. regional superior, when I was 36. And he says, in Italian, he says, a pazzo. That's crazy. <laughs> so, so my joke was, this is funny, when the, when the article came out, we, we had little prayer cards made up with inspirational quotes with pictures of him. And they were lovely quotes about, I am a sinner called by God. You know, I want to work with the poor stuff. I said, I want a card, a, a holy card of him with a picture. And on the back it says, that's crazy. <laughs> That's one of my favorite lines. It's funny because so, we're yeah he's yeah we're we're and you know I think it's interesting about confession. I mean I I hear confessions and I go to confession all the time. I go to people in my house sometime, and I think that it's there is something to be said for there's a lot to be said for actually hearing a word of forgiveness from someone physically hearing I I forgive you. Right. You know, and then through the ministry of the church, I grant you pardon and peace and I absolve you from all of your sins in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's it's quite moving. So I'm, I'm glad you like that scene. I found that a very profound scene. And we've substituted I forgive you in its place. We say it's OK. 
which completely ta- robs the the offender and the offended of the experience of healing, right? Because it's not okay. That's right. why you, right. I'm coming to you. Because yeah, you I do know have to it say, right? You do have to say, and I look. I, I'm I'm saying this as a priest and someone who's go, goes to confession. You do have to say this is a sin. Like I did this bad thing, and I seek forgiveness from God. And you're right. They're not saying it's okay. It's saying you're forgiven. One of my favorite lines is from a Jesuit priest I studied under um, it, at, in, in theology. And he said, which I love, Forgiven, uh, confession is not about how bad you are, but how good God is, mm. which is really pretty. And this is, you know, this is Jesus and the prodigal son, too. I mean, look at the prodigal son, as you know. I mean, I love what I love about that story, one of the many things, is that the, son, the, the father forgives the son even before he's opened his mouth. So the son decides he's going to say, I've sinned before you and before God, blah, blah, blah. But he doesn't really say that. The, the father sees him from so far off and forgives him even before he says it, which is so pretty. I always read that story, The Prodigal Son. Like I thought about the times when I was called to the principal's office, which as a kid with ADHD was pretty frequent. And I would rehearse my speech. Mm. right? So I wasn't thinking about being sorry. I was thinking about how do I get off? And I'm rehearsing my speech going down the hall. And okay, what am I going to say? And it's almost like the... It's interesting. It's almost like the forgiveness of the father is what creates the healing of the son. It's not because I don't even, I don't know if he's even sorry yet. He's kind of like, he's kind of thinking, all right, I'll just go and say I'm doing this. That's interesting. That that's really great insight. Like he's, he's rehearsing his speech to get the forgiveness. Right. Yeah. But the father, right. The father kind of forgives him anyway. That's a great insight. I'm going to steal that insight too. Yeah. You don't even have to footnote me for that. You know, the, you know, the Henry Nowen uh, in his book, the return of the prodigal son, one of his insights is we, we act like the younger son. I mean, you know, sinful. We feel like we're the older son, right? Righteous and, you know, doing great. We're supposed to live like the father. Yeah. So I think it's so yeah. pretty beautiful. So you and I have done some laughing, and this has just been fun because you obviously mm-hmm. have a great sense it of humor, has. which is why people like Colbert probably find uh, an affinity with you in connection. I'm thinking about laughter and prayer. I think about this story in the Hebrew Bible where basically God tells Abraham to tell Sarah, mm-hmm. we're like in our nineties or whatever, and we're going to have a kid the old fashioned way. Mm-hmm. And she laughs. Yep. Right. And God says, you laughed. And she's like, Oh no, I didn't. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, you did. It's one of my <laughs> and favorite I, stories. I, and I imagine the tone of God to like, yeah, you, come on, admit mm-hmm. you laugh. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and how, how, what role does laughter? And then eat? they, then they name their son Isaac, which means he laughs. Yeah. Son of laugh. I, I yeah. did. I did a whole yeah. book on that called between heaven and mirth about joy, humor, and laughter in the spiritual life. And I'll tell you something, Scott, I wanted to call it Sarah laughed, but the, <laughs> but the, but the publishers the pub- were like, no, they nah, said, like, what nah. does that mean? And so we called it between heaven and mirth, but I still like to think of it as Sarah laughed. It's, it's part of being human, right? It's part of being human. It's part of the way I sometimes think that, um, you know, it's part of being joyful. I mean, when I go to bed at night, I'm going to, um, in my examination of conscience, think about our conversation and say, look, I met this person. He was a lot of fun. We had some good laughs. Um, what, what, what's wrong with that? That's a, that's a gift from God. I also think God can be kind of playful with us at times. I sometimes think that the funny or wonderful and unexpected or crazy coincidental things that happen in our lives are sometimes signs of God's playfulness. And why wouldn't, why wouldn't playfulness be an, an attribute of God? I, I love that story. You know, you laughed. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. <laughs> But also, Jesus, I talk about this at length in the book. 
Jesus, we're so used to seeing Jesus as serious that we miss the many, many, many signs of his humor in the Gospels. I mean, uh, you know, one of the things I love, uh, there's a million of them and they're in the, and they're in the book. Um, you probably know that when he uses that um, expression, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel, that the word for camel and gnat are galma and gamla in Aramaic. It's like a wordplay. You strain out a gamla and you you swallow a gamla. And people are like, oh, that's pretty good. You know, it's not beyond him. You know, he gives Peter a nickname, Rocky, right? He gives, <laughs> you know? Who is gives, the most neurotic? I mean, it's funny because yeah, Peter's hard unstable. Head. Hard right? head. He's, he's unstable. Mm-hmm. He's up down. And I love when Jesus says, you're, good, you're the rock. You're the, everybody's got to be like, what? He's the rock. And he's yeah, like which a is great, which is also, yeah. I've never thought of it that way, that that may have been even like people being like, what? What are you talking about? But I, someone said to me, a uh, father, Dan Harrington, a scripture scholar said, he thinks it's a, it's a, it's sort of like, you're kind of a hard headed guy. Yeah. You're, and I, they, he thinks that they, pr- he was probably already named Rocky or Kephas. And Jesus is like, yeah, you are the rock, you know? So he's, he's, he's being playful. A lot of the, a lot of the parables are playful. He has someone like Nathaniel who says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Which I think is the best joke in the new Testament. I mean, he's making fun of his town and Jesus says, now there's a guy I like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, there's a guy without guile. Like you just made fun of my crummy little town in front of me. And you know what you, you, I like. You know, I think of him like Larry David, like Nathaniel's like the Larry David character. And Jesus says like Nat, Nat, Nazareth, I can't do a good Larry David imitation. And um, Nazareth, what do you mean? Did anything good come from Nazareth? Hey, you know what? That guy I want. Yeah. So it's it, Jesus. So so if Jesus has a sense of humor, because he, he did, because he's human, then then we need to have one. And, and God certainly has one. When you decided to become a Jesuit, how did you pray about it? And, and how did you know it was the right thing to do? Well, that that's assuming <laughs> that back then I was really praying about it. I would say that what happened was I was working for GE at the time. Um, I had graduated from, um, not too far from you, the University of Pennsylvania, uh, Wharton School. I worked for GE and I was really miserable. And I stumbled on the writings of Thomas Merton. And that led me to think about the priesthood and a religious order. And I came upon the Jesuits. And it's more that I wanted it, right? That was how God was working through that desire. And I basically asked God to just take me, take me, take me, take me, I remember. And uh, so, it, and I, I made a retreat, which helped me to understand, you know, a, a relationship with Jesus. But I, I don't think I was doing the kind of real discernment and prayer that one would need to do. And that one, I would, I would encourage people to do now before they're making a decision, but it worked. You know, it was just this sort of blind desire at the time. I'm amazed they accepted me, frankly. So is going into the Jesuits less a sort of expression of faith and more of a finding of faith, like reaching for faith? Yeah, I think that's accurate. And I think also um, it was a was a kind of a push-pull. So I was pushed out of GE because I was not happy. I really was pushed. That's how it felt. And I was pulled to something because it seemed very romantic and beautiful. Right. It, the, the, the life in, in a monastery. I mean, I, I didn't enter a monastery, but life in a, in a monastery, religious life, as they say, in a religious order, priesthood, it seems so beautiful. And, you know, that's the honeymoon period that that happens for people early on. And so that's what drew me. But I didn't really do. I don't think as much discernment as I should have, but that's OK. God kind of took care of that later on. You tell a story in the book that I, I'd like to like <clears throat> to just recount a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you tell a story from the memoirist Mary Carr about she has this powerful experience about going yeah. to church on Christmas Eve. Could you kind of just in your own words? Sure. And you know, it's actually, it. um, it's actually, and I let her tell it in her words. Um, she's, she's a spiritual directee of mine and, you know, I have to be careful with like boundaries and stuff, but, um, I wanted to, I wanted to include this mystical experience she had. It's the only way you can term it. And, you know, it's not everybody, you know, certainly not every day. Um, I think I've had a few in my life, but, you know, from time to time they happen to people. And I said, would you write about it? And I thought she was going to write a paragraph. So Mary Carr, for people that don't know, is a great memoirist and poet. She wrote like four or five pages. And I said, this is brilliant. And I'm sticking it in the book, you know, in toto, the whole thing. She's basically at a, a Christmas Eve mass on, a couple of years ago at St. Ignatius. This is not you know, private. She's written about this and she's kind of in a bad mood and things aren't going very well. And there's like this drunk woman next to her and she's angry. The, the, the drunk woman is angry at her husband. And, and she has this experience where she feels, um, let me, can I read it to you? Yeah. It's, it's better for me to read it. Yeah. <clears throat> she has this experience and like all mystical experiences, they're hard to describe. And before I go into this, I want to remind people that this is not commonplace. I mean, this might happen to people once in their lives. And so the point is this, if this doesn't happen to you, <laughs> you should not feel like you're missing out or you're praying badly. This has never happened to me. You're this not off the team. If this doesn't, you're not happen. off the team. And right. So basically she said this, um, nothing had, this is when the miracle happened. Nothing had externally changed, but it was like every molecule of my whole being was altered. I wasn't in my own skull anymore. Inside went super still. Time itself stretched and slowed to this massive pause. I started looking as if for the first time. Something, somebody was holding me. And out of that embrace, the comfort and the stillness of it, I started looking for the very first time. Everything in the church went all sparkly and the faces of people got super specific. I could see that every single one of us was made like created, forged, formed by loving hands, planned, chosen, brought forth, nourished, nurtured, cherished. In a flash, everybody I looked at became a child. I didn't hallucinate a room of children, but every person my eyes settled on, I could envision as a little kid, like about age four or five, sentient but ignorant enough to be infinitely curious and awe-filled. I looked at the little red-haired family, and their restlessness wasn't ego-fueled despair, but simply struggling life. It had much wonder in it. Uh, the mothers seemed busy but brimful of love. Her toddler's sparse hair had been gelled into this adorable little spiked red fauxhawk, but I could see her as a child too. This, I thought, is why God can forgive us everything, no matter what. So that's a part of a rather long description she had. And it's, um, you know, I think even in the telling, she's struggling with trying to explain what happened. And I've had a few experiences like that in my life. I'm a few, not a lot. And again, I, I think people have these experiences, these mystical experiences, which are rare, but people aren't encouraged. What I mean is the people have them, but it's not every day. People aren't encouraged to talk about them, right? Who's to say that that person I was talking to, uh, talking about in the labyrinth wasn't having a mystical experience, right? So, so we, we need to be encouraged to say these things can happen. And it's okay, and not to be frightened about them, but also not to see them as like the, the requirement. Like, oh, you didn't have a mystical experience at Christmas Eve? You're a bad Catholic. <laughs> I remember hearing 
Larry King interview Mother Teresa. Mm. And he asked her, when you pray, uh, what, do you, what, what do you say? And she says, I don't say anything. I listen. And he says, okay, well, what does God say? You know, what you read. And she said, he doesn't say anything. He listens. Mm. You kind of talk about this a little bit in the book, these moments, these, these moments in prayer where there, there aren't words, right? They're, they're just, you're just there and transparent and vulnerable and present. Yeah. And just in God's presence. And that's okay. Um, and, you know, but Mother Teresa, even Mother Teresa struggled a lot with her interior life, which we found out after she died. She really felt a sense of God's absence. I would say that that that's that's one way that people have of experiencing God, just a kind of stillness or a presence. But you know, I have to say, um, and I'm a big fan of Mother Teresa now, Saint Teresa of Calcutta. Even that can confuse people. Like even that, people think, okay, well, I'm supposed to close my eyes and listen to God and have God listen to me, and they don't know what to do. Like, well, what is that supposed to mean? What are you talking about? So that's why in the book I try to be to use Mary Carr's line, super specific about what kinds of thing, what, what, what that can mean. Sometimes it can mean like you feel like it's dry, but sometimes you can feel like there's a, there's a sense of peace or calm. And to say to the person, yeah, that, that's what that means. That's what Mother Teresa means. I sometimes think, unfortunately, sometimes the people who are the most um, devout at prayer aren't very, I'm not saying this about Mother Teresa, aren't very good ambassadors for prayer. Mm. Because they'll say, oh, I had the most, you know, I, I can't live without my daily devotions or I went on this retreat that was just stunning. And people are like, what are you talking about? Like, well, what does that even mean? So that's, that's one of the things I wanted to do in the book to really say, well, this is what it means, right? To, to really kind of get down to brass tacks, you know, because I think that's, people deserve that. People deserve it. Well, I think you do it really effectively. It's a wonderful Thanks. book and I really appreciate you writing it and taking some time to talk with me about it. My pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.